Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. Our new 12-part limited series is Lung Cancer 201, Expanding Horizons, and features the ways clinicians and advocates across the care continuum are taking lung cancer care and control to new heights. It's great to be with you at the Plural Space. My name is Ella Kazaruni. I am a cardiothoracic radiologist at the University of Michigan and chair of the National Lung Cancer Roundtable, whose mission is to create lung cancer survivors. Let me have Bob introduce himself. Good morning, I'm Bob Smith. I'm a cancer epidemiologist at the American Cancer Society and I'm PI of the Roundtable. Thank you, and Gerard. Hey, I'm Gerard Silvestri. I'm the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, and I'm a pulmonologist who really focuses on lung cancer as a career choice. It's great to be with you as we have Lung Cancer Action Month, and we will have had Lung Cancer Screening Day this month. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the President's Cancer Panel that happened over this last year, which is really focusing on accelerating lung cancer screening across the United States. They importantly mentioned the role that lung cancer and lung cancer screening plays in being able to reduce cancer mortality overall in this country. We held a screening summit as the National Lung Cancer Roundtable this summer, which brought together experts across major domains in lung cancer and lung cancer care, as well as public health service, volunteers, and patient advocates to really tackle how we can increase screening rates across the country. Currently, about 5 to 8% of individuals are being screened for lung cancer using the criteria of 50 to 80-pack year history of smoking and a 20-pack year history of more. And that has really increased the number of people who are eligible for screening when the USPSTF lowered the age and smoking criteria. So really being able to reach out to populations at risk for lung cancer screening, reaching diverse and vulnerable populations that are priority populations is really important to bring lung cancer screening to our population. Some of the tactics that the roundtable has been bringing forward to help accelerate screening are lung plan. Lung plan is essentially a financial modeling tool. And you might ask, why did we develop such a tool? Well, for people who are struggling to get resources to grow their lung cancer screening programs and to make them impactful, for example, by having nurse care coordinators and navigators to help manage patients through their screening journey and make sure that they come back for annual screening and also do outreach to populations, if you don't have the resources, it's hard to do an effective lung cancer screening program. And it's also hard to build an effective incidental lung nodule program. And we know that those incidental nodules also contribute to the early detection of lung cancer. So Lung Plan was developed as an easy way, using essentially a hyper-complex spreadsheet in the background, for you to put in some of your simple factors about your practice, the type of practice you are, academic, health system, or independent imaging facility, for example, the cancer risk in your local community, and some information about your local practice payer mix, and it will, in the back end, do the calculation and pop out for you an ROI on your lung cancer screening program and your incidental nodule program, ROI being return on investment. So if you want to help work with your health system or facility administrators to get those resources you need for those effective screening and nodule programs that you passionately want to grow, this is a great tool to do that. And it's available on the NLCRT website with lots of instructions and guides on how to use it and get help to make it meaningful 
for you. We also have a new state-based coalition guide, which helps states and organizations pull together information to accelerate lung cancer screening and lung cancer care across their states based on what they have readiness for, who they might consider bringing together, and tactics that other states have used to accelerate cancer screening and bringing advanced cancer care to their populations. I'm going to turn it over to Bob. Can you tell us a little bit about the value of roundtables? Roundtables are a very effective cancer control strategy. I mean, we do not have a national health system in the United States. We don't have a system of actually delivering care or even identifying where there are shortcomings in care. What we have to do is something about them. The American Cancer Society has had roundtables for 25 years. The National Lung Cancer Roundtable is five years old. We have two new roundtables that were stimulated by the president's cancer panel, cervix and breast. And what they do is they bring key organizations every organization that has a role and an opportunity to contribute to improving outcomes from a particular cancer together to solve those unaddressed needs. So as you've been describing, that not only includes screening, but in the case of lung cancer, it improves best practices in diagnostics and treatment, making sure that the patient is cared for, overcoming the ever-present problem of stigma in these patients, and the opportunity to bring organizations and experts together just strengthens the American Cancer Society's mission. That's great. Thanks, Bob. Gerard, we have at the American College of Radiology, you're very familiar with the Lung Cancer Screening Registry, which is part of the American College of Radiology's suite of quality registries. I've been fortunate to be the inaugural chair of that registry and now head up the near-dear steering committee for the ACR. It's an important quality registry for practices to put their screening data into to understand how they perform in quality compared to peer institutions and to identify opportunities for quality improvements. It's also an important source of data on how screening is performing in the United States. And you've been a major user of the data, if you will, to help put it into the perspective and share it with the scientific community and population. So can you tell us a little bit about the million screens work that you've done? Yeah, thank you. Before I get to that, though, I just want to add on to what Bob said about the roundtable. So I've been part of the roundtable for five years, and I'm a pulmonologist, and the roundtable has allowed me to be in the same room with a thoracic radiologist, with pathologists, with surgeons, with oncologists, all really who are very skilled and nationally and internationally known for what they do and what they contribute. I would never have that opportunity to be with the best smoking cessation experts. And that's led to a ton of collaboration. And so some of the things that we can never accomplish in our own silo can be accomplished with the help of the roundtable. And this project, the Million Screens Project, is a collaboration between the American College of Radiology and LCRS, the Imaging Radiology Registry, and a bunch of really high-end physicians. And so I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, the paper was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And it was a long journey, but this looked at the first million screens entered into the registry in the United States. Why is that different? It's different than the studies. So we did the National Lung Screening Trial, which was 53,000 patients, but it was a highly controlled study in a number of academic medical centers and large community centers with lots of resources, with investment investigators invested in the project, we didn't know how did that translate to people out in the communities across the United States. So the first million screens, we looked at sort of six questions, and three are published in this paper, and three more will be coming out in another paper. But the first three were, 
do people meet the criteria? And the great news there is of that first million screens, 91% met the full criteria to be screened, meaning that they met the age and smoking history and when they quit rate. So that was great news. There was a lot of worry about whether the wrong, quote, people would be screened. Of the about 110,000 that didn't meet criteria, 40,000 would have met the new criteria, meaning instead of 55 to 77, 50 to 80 with a 20-pack rather than a 30-pack year history of smoking. So docs were really good about who should be screened. That's the first major take-home finding. The second was, what did they look like? What did that screening group look like? And there are some important parameters there that I think are going to inform us about how we need to target groups. And so the three groups I'd like to target here are men, because women are being screened a lot more than men, than the eligible population. We postulated and looked at literature for that. And it turns out that women are actually just better at screening services because they've been getting mammography for years, cervical cancer screening for years. And if you look at data, women are really responsible for the health in most of the households in the United States. So we postulated that we need to target men. Not enough men are being screened. The second is older patients are being screened. So 65 and above, I think it was 29% of that group, more than we expected of the eligible population in the United States. And we think the reason for that might be that there's uniform health care coverage, as Bob mentioned before, in the form of Medicare in the United States. So really importantly, we increase the number of eligible people from 55 to 50, but if they're not insured, that might be problematic in terms of getting them in. And maybe one of the reasons that only 10 or 12 percent of the U.S. population eligible for lung cancer screening are being screened. So we have to focus on the younger population of the people eligible. And the third is, this was the biggest surprise for me in this million screens data, which is we didn't expect current smokers to come out of the woodwork. We thought they would sort of hide and avoid being screened, but we're actually screening more current smokers than former smokers. And in the National Lung Screening Trial, it was about 50-50 in terms of former and current smokers. Here, we're doing a lot more current smokers than expected. The reason for that, we postulate, again, we don't know for sure, but we postulate that they're easy to identify, both in the electronic medical record and in the doctor's office. I mean, I see people come in and I can smell it on them. I know they smoke. People who have quit smoking, let's say, 10 years ago, it may be out of sight, out of mind for the clinician seeing them, and they might be seeing them for back pain or diabetes. And so what we realize is that we have to have a better way of targeting former smokers because they have great benefit from screening as well. And so that's the first big three questions we asked who's being screened, do they meet eligibility criteria, and then the last part of that question is, are they coming back? And this, I think, will present a challenge to the roundtable going out, which is only 22% came back within a year for their follow-up annual screen. And we want to emphasize this is not a one-and-done procedure. You know, to get the benefit, you have to come back. About half of the cancers picked up in the National Lung Screening Trial were not picked up on that first screen, but were picked up on subsequent screens. If you don't come back, you don't get the benefit of screening. Just to give you a little tease, in the second half of this day, we have three more questions, and those questions are, does LungRads, that's the reporting system that Ella has been so involved in, does LungRads work? And I'll give you a little teaser, it works great for following up these nodules and predicting whether what you see on that CT scan is a cancer. The second question is, what is the stage shift? And what's so great, again, little tease, we do have a stage shift towards early stage disease, which is incredibly important. If you're going to screen, you want to find disease early that's curable. And then the third thing is the cancer detection rate, which was lower than we expected, and we think there might be multiple reasons for that, but one in particular might be that 
people aren't coming back for their subsequent screens, and that's where you detect cancer. So I think that summarizes what we found in the Million Screens paper. And so I hope this important work can continue through linking some of that Million Screens data to SEER and Medicare data, which will give us more information about what happens downstream from the initial screen. That's fantastic. We've never had this before in prior cancers to look at how cancer screening is being rolled out and then to develop targeted strategies to try and improve the screening rates. Um, learning on the past history of what happened with colon cancer rollout and breast cancer screening rollout has really helped us and this is one of those ways that we've been systematically collecting data to inform our understanding and to be able to target recruitment strategies to increase the screening rate across the country. Bob, you had the guidelines for the Cancer Society and I know that there's a new Cancer Society guideline for lung cancer screening in the works, and data is really important as you're developing updated guidelines. Can you tell us a little bit about the process? It's a very intensive data-driven process, and you take out a fresh sheet of paper. I think that the Preventive Services Task Force has done a very good job. In effect, most of the guidelines follow the NLST, and they've been evolving over time. But these data are absolutely critical, and I want to reemphasize the point that Ella just made and Gerard just made. I've been here for all of these rollouts, and we have never had the amount of data for the previous cancers that we now have for lung. And that's largely as a result of this historic collaboration between the ACR and the ACS, the ACR's engagement with the roundtable, and then people who are hugely interested in analyzing these data, taking advantage of them in real time, where we otherwise have to wait, you know, years for the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System or the National Health Interview Survey to gather samples of self-reported lung cancer screening, and then by the time they get to us, they're a little out of date. And during this early period, we want to be able to look at them state by state. That allows us to actually focus our interventions not only on overall screening, but to where we're seeing disparities and where we're seeing pockets where people are just not getting any screening at all. What guidelines are intended to do is help guide these early detection practices, and they are basically written and driven not only for the public, but for the referring provider. And what we'll also do is accompany these guidelines with tools, strategies, ways in which we can communicate the importance of early detection, the point that Gerard just made, that screening is not just a one-and-done test. And as the public understands, mammography and colorectal cancer screening and cervical cancer screening are periodic, regular events in your preventive health care plan. Lung cancer screening needs to be the same. It's been an interesting time in lung cancer screening as we've kind of learned from prior cancer screening rollouts. I talked to many of my breast radiology colleagues to learn what worked well and what they wish they had. And building on foundations like BIRADS for breast cancer screening, LungRADS was a no-brainer to do for lung cancer screening to standardize reporting and management practices. The registry was really foundational. And to all my colleagues at the ACR and the leaders who had the foresight to make the investment, it's been a really important way for us to look at screening and to help practices do quality improvement. To one of the points that Gerard made, one of the new features in the ACR's registry is a set of quality improvement tools for practices. And we've developed three targeted tools around some key performance indicators, one of which is adherence, to help practices step-by-step -step use their data, look at their adherence rates, and give them tactics to put in place, people to reach out to that are important to develop a project to improve their adherence. And that's the kind of work that we can do as a quality registry. So to close this out, Gerard, I have two things for you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with screening in Carolina to you know, address some of this type of data and accelerate lung cancer screening? And then also to tell us about how advances in lung cancer 
care are really making a difference to change the face of lung cancer. Yeah, so in South Carolina, I've been lucky enough to have been in the state now almost 30 years, and our cancer center director has allowed me to put together a team to spread screening across the state and through our regional health network. So hospitals now are hospital systems. They're no longer singular hospitals, and we have six hospitals in rural and underserved areas. And over the past 18 months, we've developed a screening program in all six hospitals with a centralized approach from the main university campus and advanced practice providers running those screening programs. And I will tell you, if you are interested in that, the singular most important thing you can have is an operations team that goes to these places and includes an advanced practice provider, a radiology champion, a physician champion, the highest level administrator you can get who's buying into this marketing folks. People were CT text to make sure that their scanners themselves are registered with the ACR. So it takes a sort of village to have this operations team and we just moved from one hospital to the next and figured out things like right up front you have to have a job description for what that advanced practice provider is going to do. And so our timeline was really shortened by doing that in the second hospital and the third and the fourth. And so we've been seeing incredible results. Again, some of the challenges are different in each healthcare setting and so you get your operations team back together on monthly calls and say, hey, what's working, what's not working? As far as lung cancer is concerned, it is an incredible time to be in this field. I think a lot of our providers have always been a little bit nihilistic about lung cancer because it was sort of a disease with a 3 to 5% survivorship. And over the last 5 to 10 years, we're getting, I would say, two or three very quick things. One is personalized therapy. And so what we're seeing is that we have mutations in all of our lung cancers. It's not one disease. It may be as many as 100, and really, really important to test people's tumors for these biomarkers because they can get treatments that target those mutations, and patients are now living with metastatic lung cancer five-plus years, and that's more normal than it was. We have 20%, 30% survivorship in that group. The second thing is that's moving to earlier stage disease, and so we've had two big trials that have informed us that you can get treatment before surgery if you have certain parameters, and after surgery with other parameters, other mutations. So now we're starting to test people's mutations right up at the earliest stages, stage 1B, which is a smaller tumor, all the way up through 3A. So I think those are the two huge changes, and we're seeing just much, much better survival curves in those patients out to five years. So I think that's really the exciting thing going on in lung cancer. Of course, we also have smoking cessation practices that we're incorporating into screening programs, and there's a bunch of studies going on there because, yes, it's great to be able to treat patients with lung cancer, even better to be able to prevent patients from developing lung cancer in the first place. So it's been a pleasure to be with you today on this podcast and hope that you found this very helpful. Being part of the roundtable has been tremendous for me and with colleagues like Gerard and Bob and several hundred volunteers who are committed to advancing the future for lung cancer and lung cancer patients and lung cancer care. It's been one of the highlights of my professional career to be able to work with these amazing individuals and together we will all create lung cancer survivors. Floral Space is a joint production by the American Cancer Society National Lung Cancer Roundtable and the American College of Radiology. Episodes are executive produced by Hannah Burson and Beverly Carlisle with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. Find more information on this series at the link in the episode description. 